Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible. Hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments or ask questions in our Facebook group. Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through scripture. I'm Will Kynes. And I'm Ronnie Cosman. And in this episode, we're looking at Romans 7 and 8, where we encounter the infamous I, and well-known verses on redemption. Today, we're talking to Dr. Susan Eastman. Dr. Susan Eastman is Associate Research Professor of New Testament at Duke Divinity School. She is the author of Recovering Paul's Mother Tongue, Language and Theology in Galatians, as well as of Paul and the Person, Reframing Paul's Anthropology. Now, in Paul, in Paul and the person, uh, Susan, in addition to your brilliant insight on how Paul understands the human person, you also showcase a brilliant prophetic utterance. Uh, you said this, now remember this, you, this was published in 2017, but you said, you said this, in the modern world, there are all kinds of attempts to protect vulnerable human beings from face masks to hand sanitizer to walls along borders. When I I read that, I just thought, wow, that was prophetic. And those things mean so much more to us now than they did back in 2017. Uh, I I had forgotten that. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, Susan. Yeah. So, Susan, what first drew you to the book of Romans? Well, uh, I worked as a pastor for many, many years, about two decades, um, before I was compelled by my own interest to go back and and do a doctorate in New Testament. And when I worked as a pastor, Paul's letters um, and in my own Christian life were such significant resources. I think that Paul gives us ways to articulate the gospel afresh in every generation. Uh, and I think Romans in particular is incredibly powerful for doing that. Um, it's a journey of discovery, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to think of it as a journey of discovery into a deeper knowledge of ourselves, but also even more into the mystery of God's love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now we're looking at Romans 7 and the first part of Romans 8 today. And on that stage of the journey, What do you see as the biggest obstacles? What's most difficult for you to interpret, most challenging for you to interpret in this passage we're looking at today? And how do you tackle that? I I think Romans 7 is famously or infamously difficult uh, because uh, a lot of there are a lot of questions about who the I is. Mm -hmm. Paul switches to a first person performance, I would say. Mm -hmm. Uh, of a, the plight of someone in the grip of sin, struggling with the law, and unable to do the good that they want to do. Uh, and so it's very just technically difficult in a way, like much of Paul, to figure out what he's saying. Um, uh, I can go on. About, well, I will say briefly, I read this in the ways I was taught for a long time as about total depravity or bad uh, motives. Even if you do good, you're doing it with bad motives. Mm -hmm. I was taught that that's what Paul is saying. 
And I kind of bought that until I was a respondent on a panel about Romans 7. And I really closely read the text in which the only time Paul talks about motives, they're good. Hmm. I want to do the good. That's a motive. I hmm. want to do the good. And I thought, wow. Which is to say that close reading of a text can change your mind and change your life. Because it really did. I, it, opened up the text for me simply by noticing that Paul was not saying what everybody told me he said. Yeah. So I will just say that as a taster. Yeah, that's great. And we're grateful for you to come and close read the text with us some right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, Susan, how do you see these two chapters fitting into uh, the rest of Paul's letter? I mean, maybe we can dive into, he begins with uh, a marriage metaphor. So he says, he tells us that a married woman is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is discharged from the law concerning the husband. So why is Paul using this marriage metaphor? And is this a good entry point for us to talk about how this whole section fits with what comes before? Yeah. So um, most commentators, for what that's worth, uh, will read um, this first six verses of, of Romans 7 as kind of summing up what he's talked about in Romans, say, 5, 12 through all of chapter 6, especially in chapter 6. He talks about dying to the law. He talks about dying with Christ, being baptized into Christ's death. Um, He says, sin will not reign over you because you are not under law, but under grace. Very interesting things uh, about experience. These are experiential statements. Um, So I think the way... The marriage metaphor works, just in brief, I won't spend a lot of time on this, is that this also metaphor appeals to human experience and uh, connects it with something that we can't fully describe or, or explain. And in a marriage, each person, the person in the marriage is defined, constrained, shaped, and constituted in that relationship. Mm -hmm. And when that relationship is gone, the person who was thus defined and constituted also in a sense dies and begins a new life, experientially. And uh, even though Paul's description is pretty muddled in in some ways, I think (laughs) that this basic idea that, um, that, this was Paul's experience, actually. He, his life was constituted, sourced, shaped, ordered by the law. And in his new life in Christ, that is not the case anymore. And he has a new relationship that is newly shaping and ordering his life and constituting who he is. And that, I think, is the basic idea that Paul wants to get across. So is that part of what we'll get to here in more detail, but is that part of what he's wrestling with as we move into chapter seven is this kind of redefinition, redefinition of who he is and his relationship with the law? Well, I think that, you know, there's a lot of debate about whether Paul's talking about himself or not, whether right. his first person eye is really right. about right. me, Paul. Right. I think it's a performative eye. I think he's impersonating, representing an experience. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but I also think his own experience 
surely lies behind what he talks about. Okay. Uh, so it's not like he's saying, I want you to know all about me, Paul. Right. But I do think that his own, um, he has to be shaped by the way his life has dramatically changed. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that informs his theology yeah. and his theologizing. So in that sense, yeah. Now, yeah. Susan, if the marriage metaphor is getting at a kind of fundamental restructuring from a relation that's uh, under the law to one that's now bound to Christ, does that imply that uh, the law is bad in any way? Yeah. So, of course, many people think that Romans 7, 7 to the end of the chapter is a defense of the law because Paul's been so harsh on the law. Yeah, right. uh, I mean, he said some pretty mm, troubling things, particularly for him as a Jew. Yeah. Um, and in one sense, that certainly happens, although I think that's just a part and not, not, ma- not the major part of what happens and what follows. Um, So, I will just say that for in in Romans 7, 7 to going into chapter 8, Paul talks about the law in relationship to sin, Mm -hmm. and he he comes back to the entrance of sin, which he talked about in 5, 12 following, and, and this really important discussion of the law in relationship to sin. And then in, uh, that's like 7 through, verses 7 through 13. And then he talks about uh, sin in relationship to the self in 7, 14 following. I'm just giving you an overview. Mm -hmm. And then he talks about sin and the law and the self all together. So these are the players in this drama. But, and then the Holy Spirit and God Mm -hmm. and Christ are the real players that come on the stage right. at, at the end of uh, chapter seven and into chapter eight. Mm-hmm. But the, the chief actor, it's very interesting, is sin. Sin is the subject of most of the active verbs. And the law is pretty passive. The law is used by sin. Uh, and the self is indwelt by sin. So sin is kind of on the rampage um, here. Uh, and um so we can we can go back to text and we can get into that in more detail i'll let you ask more detailed questions and we can talk about that sure well why don't why don't we continue with the paul's presentation of the law here um Mm -hmm. he says in verse seven i would not have known what it is to covet or maybe translate desire Mm -hmm. if the law had not said you shall not covet which in greek it's the same word as desire uh is there a reason that of the ten commandments let's say why would paul zero in on that one that seems pretty intentional to me i agree i think it is intentional um And the interesting thing about this commandment, of course, some of the rabbinic rabbis said this is kind of like the overarching commandment, you know, you shall not covet, that desire or covetousness is kind of like the root of evil. Right. Um, But I think we can say for Paul that this uh, particular commandment in Tole, is the Greek, is... um, allows him to bring together the story from Genesis, which Mm -hmm. I think is in view here. Not everybody agrees, but I think it is. And the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law, uh, in a double kind of reference. So on one hand, what he talks about here is really kind of a reprise of um, 
5, 12 and following, where when the commandment came in 5, 12, he says, sin entered mm-hmm. into the cosmos and brought mm-hmm. death with it. Sin and death came in. I says, when the commandment came, uh, uh, sin revived and I died. Sin came to life. So sin was there before the law. But, uh, but, but somehow the law activated sin. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Is one of the things Paul says about the law. So I think that he's in a sin. And then the whole, uh, a little bit later, he says, sin, use the law to deceive and kill me. Right. In verse 11. Very important and interesting verse. So <laughs> in this, I do think that seems to echo the Genesis narrative about right. the deception and death. So we have that, but then we also have, of course, this is one of the commandments. Uh, and so I think Paul is able to bring those together here uh, through referring to this commandment. Um, And therefore he's able to speak about Jewish experience under the law of Moses, but in a way that is really about the experience of all human beings in the wake of Adam. And just to clarify, when you're saying the Genesis narrative, you're talking about Genesis three. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Right. Okay. I I mean, I think there's a, there's a a important connection also with the language of desire because Eve uh, we're told uh, found that the tree was desirable for making one wise. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And in early Jewish literature, desire is sometimes associated with Eve. Um, But also as Susan, as you mentioned, desire is often the is sometimes the root of all sin. So I think one one example of this is in uh, James. In uh, James one fourteen, uh, we read, "But no one is tempted by one's own desire, but lured and enticed by it. Then, uh, then when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and that and that and that sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death." So there's kind of one instance where you have this chain from desire to sin to death, um, which is a really interesting. It seems like perhaps Paul is thinking in a similar way, right? That desire is kind of the the root of all sin. And that when the law confronts the human being, so, for some reason, <laughs> there is this kind of inflammation of mm-hmm. desire. Mm-hmm. Does that, is I'm that, not sure I agree with that. You don't agree? You don't buy it? Okay, well, <laughs> why not? Well, uh, I think that it certainly was a Jewish view, and we can find it in James, and we find it in the rabbis, um, okay. and we can find it in contemporary Christian theology as well. Um, yeah. But I think when Paul talks about sin entering the world in 512 and following, mm-hmm. and when Paul talks here of the ways in which he talks about sin in the self, it's as if sin is sort of alien. Hmm. So, and much bigger than human beings, because he talked, he's already from 512 on, he's talked about sin ruling like a king, mm-hmm. lording it over. He's talked about um, uh, sin is like a colonial, I think of it as a colonizing power right. um, that holds humanity in its grip. And insofar as Paul talks about um, not desire, but wanting and wishing, fellow is the Mm -hmm. word, it's good. I want the good. It's possible to want the good. Even in the grip of sin, one might be wanting the good, and yet find to your horror that what you're actually accomplishing, the result of your actions, is not what you wanted. It's bad. So I think Paul has a somewhat more cosmic uh, understanding of sin. 
Um, and we can talk more about that. Um, yeah, sure. sure. I, I mean, what, what I mean by that. Sure. But, so I don't think Paul just sees sin as something that comes out of human beings, but it's something that also operates on and in human beings. Yeah. Um, it, it has a much more global and larger than the individual structure. Right. But it's what, what I'm trying to focus on here is the desire aspect. I, I'm with you that sin is a kind of foreign power. Right. Is, is it the is it the power that makes desire go awry? Is, is that, that sin sin uses the law to multiply every desire? So he says in verse eight, but sin seizing an opportunity in the commandments produced in me all kinds of desire or every desire, right? So I think that's what I have. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. So what what I was suggesting earlier is that when the human person is confronted by the divine commandment. Uh, I think thou shalt not desire is kind of perhaps being a summation of God's divine demand. Um, but when the human person is confronted with the divine demand, what happens is uh, sin uses it as an opportunity to inflame the desire and then to produce and then to basically kill kill the human being or to result in the human being acting in a sinful way. I mean, is that different than what than what you were suggesting earlier? You think? I think that's a better qualification. Okay. Um, it sounded like you were just saying that desire equals sin, and I find no, that no, no, yeah, well, just not adequate to the way yeah, Saint Paul sure, talks yeah. about sin and to the human experience of sin. But this um, sort of thing that the commandment can trigger an opposing reaction, yeah, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. um, certainly is one aspect of how sin can use the law or the commandment here. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Why don't we talk a little bit about verses 21 to 23? Um, there see, it seems like Paul maybe uses law in different ways, or maybe it's all in the same way, right? So he oh, yeah. says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war uh, with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So I guess, what are these different laws? Some scholars, when they see Romans 7, I don't know if you, what, you, what you think about this, but some scholars, when they come here, they see law, and in many cases, they just want to substitute uh, the law of Moses or something like that. Um for a number of them. Do you think Paul is using the word law in kind of creative ways to get to different senses of the word? Or what, what do you think? Well, this is, uh, again, uh, a big debate, um, yeah. like everything in Romans. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I think. Well, let's go back a little bit uh -huh. in sure. order to frame this really complex section of the chapter sure a little bit so in um there in 7 through 13 paul has talked about sin's use of the law uh so in that sense he's talked and there he does seem to mean the law of moses mm -hmm. um and he so he has said and it's very interesting, this thing about sin, deceiving, and killing me, which we'll come back to, um, is, is um, follows on the commandment which promised life proved to be death to me. 
So the commandment, and he follows that the commandment is holy, just, and good. So the mm-hmm. law is good, and the law promised life, and it's meant for life, but sin has taken it and used it to work death. So he said that, and then he says, um, uh, sin working death in me through what is good, this verse 13, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become utterly beyond measure sinful or a sinner. So. The reason I'm saying this is that Paul is here depicting sin as a double movement. Sin is using the law of Moses to deceive, to kill, to awaken desire in the first place, to deceive, to work death. Um, And in that process, the law is showing up just how egregious and horrendous and lethal sin is and showing sin's identity as the superlative sinner, so to speak. It's revealing this agent in a sense. We mm-hmm. can come back to that. Sin is sort of an agent, sort of not. Um, so given that, when we get to this in um, these verses 21 to 23, which are very difficult verses, I agree. On the one hand, it sounds like Paul is talking about at least two different laws, because he uses the term another law. Mm-hmm. And so on the one hand, he has the law of God in my inmost self, and or which seems maybe to also be the law of my mind, this kind of language. And on the other hand, Another law at work in my members, which would be bodily members, that kind of language, which he's already used in in chapter six, uh, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So you seem to have two laws, the law of sin and the law of um, God and the law located in my mind and the law located in my bodily members. Well, you see, this is a very dualistic picture, not only of two laws, but a a split within the self between mind, good, body, bad. It has been read this way a lot. Right. Do you agree with me? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Now, um, given what we've already heard about sin's use of the Mosaic law and what we've heard earlier about how the members of the body, same language, same word, in chapter 6, Paul talks about yielding your bodily members to righteousness or to God as weapons of righteousness rather than to sin. So he clearly thinks that the bodily members can be for good or for ill. The body is a place for displaying and being enmeshed in sin, but also a place for connection with God and Christ and with each other to display God's goodness. So body is not bad. Earlier, he's already shown how sin's use of the law can muck up our minds as well, (laughs) hasn't he? I mean, he's shown how the sins uses the law in this case, the law of Moses, clearly in context, the commandment, to deceive and to kill. So that suggests to me that what might be going on here is that the law of God, that the law is kind of like, has a passivity about it. It's used by greater powers. The law of God, the law in relationship to God, as it is intended to be, is for life. 
But the law, when taken in hand by sin and used by sin, is for death. And so in this sense, the same law could be in play, but but in relationship to, on the one hand, God, and on the other hand, sin. And the law in the hands of sin is deceptive and, and is used for deceptive and lethal purposes. So that's why I think, and what that means then is that this, what looks like a mind-body split is not really such a thing. It's in my, with my mind, I serve the law of God means with my mind, I desire, I want mm -hmm. the good. Mm -hmm. But because in my bodily existence, I'm enmeshed in the realm of existence where sin reigns and death reigns, and I can't help that. It is still the case. As a body, I'm connected. Then, yeah. um, then I still have this pull. Uh, I'm not fully free yet. Right. Not to, in some ways, have, um, have my actions serve sin. Right. I think that's really interesting, Susan, because, you know, in some, and you mentioned this earlier when you referred to total depravity, um, is that in some depictions of the human being under sin, uh, the result is that the entire epistemic apparatus, or let's say the whole mind has become fallen and corrupt and unable to comprehend anything good. Right. That's in some car caricatures of yeah, the human true, problem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but it seems like that, you know, Paul seems to see an ongoing existence or reality in which uh, the law of the mind, like the human being knows what's good, but is but is impotent. Is it, enslaved. Yeah, that's is, is enslaved or, you know, um, or, or sin comes in like a third actor. Right intruding between what we want to do and what our actions accomplish. Mm. Yeah. I think about um, really well-intentioned desires to um, charitable works that actually have the opposite effect in their mm. execution. Yeah. The, the money poured into Haiti after that first earth, that earthquake some years ago that ended up putting Haitian businesses out of business. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, there's a, a great um, little documentary called Poverty Inc. about this. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we, we, well, we're just, we can see this in the news every day. Yeah. Now, in, in Paul's mind, would he see sin as an agent at work in that example for that you just brought up? I mean, what, Sin, as you've mentioned a couple of times, has a kind of agency here. I mean, you might even capitalize sin, perhaps, in, yeah, some, in sure. the English translation. But would would Paul, if I mean, if Paul were asked about that example you just gave, would he say, well, there, there you go. That's sin, capital S, sin at work. Um, yeah, here's how I here's how I think about sin and agency, having been accused of being Manichaean, which I do not believe I am. Okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> does Paul have two powers in heaven or something? No, I don't think so. Um, he here, really in 512 through the end of chapter seven, sin is the subject of active verbs. And that's how we say it has agency. It's acting. 
And it's the subject of verbs that previously human beings were the subject of. It, you, can, you can look at mm-hmm. like in chapter seven and compare it to say chapters one and two, and you see that sin is now doing what Paul said humans do. Humans did. Uh, accomplishing what um, Paul accused humans of accomplishing. So, so sin has a main, it's, it's a main player in this drama. Um, and it's characterized by uh, the lie, sin deceived me and killed me, and by death. But the thing about this is, and, and that wait relates all the way back to um, the primal idolatry of exchanging the truth of God for a lie Mm -hmm. in um, there in one chapter one. Mm -hmm. So we have this sense of, of uh, sin and falsehood, sin as falsehood. Now, the interesting thing about this is that lies have no reality. Ontologically speaking, a lie doesn't, it has no substance. It doesn't exist. And yet they have tremendous agency mm. for a while. So, and they are lethal. Lies are lethal. And I'm reading it in the news every day. People who are not vaccinated because they are believing lies and thousands and thousands are dying. So, I mean, lies are lethal. Lies start wars. Lies break up families. You know, they have a tremendous power, but they're not real. Right. So sin is, is an agent in that way. And that's really Paul's language. It's mm-hmm. just the way he speaks. So um, I think that's really, to me, helpful. And the second thing about this is that sin has a place in God's economy. There's a great little essay by Simon Gathercole about this, but we're not can go <laughs> sin in God's economy. Um, sin ultimately is used by God to uh, put a stop to human accomplishments. So you have it in Galatians. Uh, scripture has, has shut up all under sin. Um, and you have it in Romans uh, 11. Um, God has shut up all into disobedience that he might have mercy on all. So there's a sense in which sin is a penultimate player but has no ultimate reality. But as a penultimate player, it is a formidable um, power that is operating systemically through um, the network and and kind of self-perpetuating web of relationships that Paul calls the flesh, in which humanity is enmeshed and it works, Mm -hmm. you know, through history, it works through family structures, it works in communities, and um, and it's bigger than the individual. Mm. And so that would be operative in um, mm. Haiti, the situation right. in Haiti, okay, for sure. example. That's a long answer, but... Yeah, but that helps us get at the dynamics of sin here in this chapter. So right. thank you. Yeah. So we come in verses 7 through 25 with now the famous, infamous I that has bewildered scholars for many, many years. Um, so Paul says beginning in verse seven, he repeatedly used the first person singular pronoun, I. Now, Paul says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I I would not have known what it is to covet. 
he goes on to say, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the very commandment that promised life uh, to pr- life proved to be death for me. For sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. He goes on to say in verse 14, I am sold into slavery under sin. Uh, the eye says, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Um, who is this I? And yeah. and what's the eyes? I mean, we've talked about the eyes problem, but maybe you could talk about who is the eye and what's yeah. the eyes dilemma with sin. Yeah. So as you know, there's a lot of ink <laughs> over this question. Anxiously trying to nail down the identity of the eye is the eye Paul himself in a confessional moment. Is the eye uh, a typical Jew trying to keep the law? Mm-hmm. Is the eye a person prior to faith? Because Paul has already talked about victory over sin through baptism into Christ in chapter six. So how could this eye be a Christian? On the other hand, why is Paul talking to these Roman believers in this way? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it is, it's a very, um, And we know Augustine famously changed his mind on this. Here's what I have come to, my theory. I'll just give you my theory. (laughs) And then we can debate about it. I think that um, we have to attend to Paul's rhetoric here and ask what he's trying to do. Suddenly he switches to first person. And then he speaks in a very emotional, performative, existential, Mm -hmm. experiential way through the end of the chapter. And uh, about emotions, about what I want, what happens. And, and it's, a, it's a very dramatic, performative narrative. And however we identify this in terms of ancient rhetoric, its effect is to draw the listener, the audience, into the experience. Mm-hmm. It simply has that effect, and it has had that effect for centuries. You know, and if you if you talk about this with somebody, whether they're a believer or not a believer, they'll identify, Mm. which is, I think, important data. So that seems to me then to mean that Paul must be wanting these Roman Christians who are hearing this to go through this experience again to, to and and so it's a performance like a play in which the audience figures out where they are in that drama. Where do they identify? So instead of asking who is the I, we let the text ask us, who are you? And where are you? I think that would be more in line with Paul's purposes in the letter as a whole. Mm And that means that we're not reading this as an argument about ontological identity. We're reading it more like we'd hear a sermon that takes us into an experience and then at the end of it announces the good news to that experience. That, I think, is what Paul is doing. He is taking the readers, and it's like if the shoe fits, wear it. You may say, I don't know who this I is. I never have this experience. I always do exactly what I want to do. You know, I know I'm always doing the good. We might say that, in which case we could just skip to chapter eight. Or we might find ourselves saying, yeah, boy, I know exactly what that's talking about. We might say that 
whether we're a believer or not a believer. Paul does not seem to be so worried about that. If that happens, then by the time we get to eight, where there's a little text variant, eight, two, um, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you, singular, I think that's the strongest reading, from the law of sin and death, the law and the grip of sin and death. So that is like spoken to the anguished I, the experience of the I in chapter seven. So to me, I'm less interested in that question. Mm -hmm. I think the indeterminacy, the impossibility of logically nailing down that identity lets it function in a different way for the listeners. Yeah. You know what I like about that is it reminds me of another debated eye, probably not debated quite as much as this, which is the eye in the Psalms. Who is this eye in the Psalms? And I mean, the reading I like of that eye in the Psalms is that any listener or singer of the Psalms is intended to be able to step into the position Hmm. of that eye so that they can associate with different emotional experiences that the eye is expressing. And what I always tell my students is, you know, when you sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, saved a wretch like me, right? You're not supposed to think, oh, isn't that great that John Newton was saved, right? You're supposed to step into that, ex- <laughs> right. that you're supposed to think of that me as yourself. Right. So I, I, I actually really like that reading. Of course, I'm the Job expert in this conversation, <laughs> so this is not much better. Um, but yeah. Let me just say that um, Beverly Gaventa has an article, a little essay on the eye of the Psalter and the eye in Romans 7. Okay, there you go. Making exactly those connections. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think that's a really good insight. Yeah. Right. So on your reading, then the eye could be any one of those options, really, right? Any person who finds themselves either as a Christian, someone who's in Christ, or... um, or someone who's not can identify with the eye, with the eye. Yeah, it's it's operating on an experiential level, not on an ontological right. level. At ont- you know, we, we might say that ultimately and securely, based on Romans five and six, mm-hmm. we have been baptized into Christ. We have, and on Romans 8, the Spirit is working in the community. But nonetheless, insofar as we are still enmeshed in a realm, the realm of sin and death, the present evil age is not over with yet. It, you know, we have already, but not yet. We're still in that not yet. We may need to hear this good news right. over and over and over again. Right. And perhaps my work as a preacher influences yeah. that interpretation for me, but I... I think it that's how I read it. Yeah. And it, 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 it's a reading that helps it connect, <clears throat> which I really appreciate. And I also appreciate how you're walking us through this passage as a drama and introducing us to all the different players. So we've walked, we've, we've met the law and we've met sin and we've met the eye. Uh, now we've got Christ, Christ. Uh, and we see here, for example, in eight, one to eight, uh, the, the mention of how there is, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Uh, so how is it that Christ provides a solution here for the eyes problem as Paul sees it? Yeah. 
You know, it's, I will just say one thing. Well, I'll probably say a lot, but there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, scholars debate, is Paul, does Paul think in forensic or juridical terms, or does Paul think in terms of participation in crisis? Is that, mm-hmm, right. in my view, a false dichotomy? But yeah. here, Paul says there is no condemnation. Now, that's forensic language, that's the language of a courtroom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that speaks to the fear of condemnation that the I is under. Right. Um, but then the rest of this language is all about the spirit indwelling the community. It's participatory. So um, I think that these things come together. But where they come together is in um, a logic of solidarity in which God in Christ joins God's self to Adamic humanity. We've got this beginning in uh, chapter five. Um, And so the participation is that God in Christ participates in the realm of human dereliction. God, and this is Philippians 2, um, this is 2 Corinthians uh, 5, God made the one who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, mm-hmm. that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is called the um, interchange in Christ by uh, mm-hmm. scholar Morna Hooker. Um, and so what seems to happen here is that on the cross, God in Christ has so fully entered into the human situation that the condemnation of a crucifixion falls on sin itself. Mm-hmm. And that's what you get in Romans 8, 3. Um, God condemned sin in the flesh. Yeah. Uh, that's just a remarkable statement. By sending, sending his own son in the likeness of the flesh of sin and for sin, that's how my translation of it. And likeness implies a real unity, but distinction. It's, it's slippery language. Paul uses it at key places in his letters. Uh, he condemns sin in the flesh. And so, in a way, he's, getting, he's, he's condemning sin itself. Sin has emerged as the real culprit here. Mm-hmm. And he's condemning sin to set us free from sin so that we can walk in newness of life. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is after Romans 8, this little bit here, I mean, sin is dominated from 512 to this point. Paul doesn't talk about sin anymore. Hmm. He's only halfway through this letter. And you look for the word sin, it shows up mm-hmm. once in quotation. It's, it's like done on the cross. So the way in which um, there's no condemnation is that God has condemned sin itself and set sin slaves, which is yeah. what we are, apart from Christ, free. Right. So the, the, yeah, no, I, I really like that. I think that your whole point about sin being an agent, right, uh, is depicted as a person that has power, which we saw in chapter seven, that... Uh, agency that paul gives to sin we have here right 
because when he says that uh, he condemned sin, that again is picking up on the portrait of sin as a person. Because you condemn people, <laughs> right? Condemn agents. You That's right. Things that have entities with agency. That's right. And because sin was a kind of a tyrant earlier in chapter seven mm-hmm. over the eye, now that sin has been condemned and dealt with on the cross, now that eye that was enslaved to sin is now liberated and can do the righteousness that the law had required of the eye. Yeah, exactly. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, A2, has set you free from the law of sin and death, which would pronounce condemnation, but we're set free from that. We're free because of your relationship with Christ. Yeah. So the theological anthropology in play here, on the person, (laughs) but really, (laughs) is participatory it's relational we are never on our we're individuals but we're never on our own we're in relationship to sin which qualifies us we're kind of under the influence i always say we're driving under the influence so to speak you know we're not just self-constituting we're not self-determining but on the other hand in relationship to christ we have a new identity and and an allied agency. And whereas in relationship to sin, sin in that sense is like an abusive partner that takes your agency away. If you do what you don't want to do, but you know, but my, my students make these connections, but in relationship to Christ through the spirit, we're in the kind of a relationship that facilitates and frees and strengthens our agency to do, to be effective, to do the good we want in relationship with others. Great. Well, what, Susan, what is the role of the spirit now in this passage, right? The spirit now appears on the stage (laughs) quite a bit, really forcefully, right? In verse two, uh, where Paul tells us about the spirit of life. And then the spirit comes up again and again throughout to verse 17 and does a number of things. What does the spirit do and why is the spirit so important for Paul? Yeah, well, I think the spirit is the president. Paul calls the spirit, the spirit of God, the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead, the spirit of Christ. So Paul clearly links the spirit with mm-hmm. God in this really proto-Trinitarian way. Mm-hmm. I mean, so the spirit is the dynamic active presence of God in and among the community. And mm-hmm. um, so that's why it's so important, um, absolutely central for Paul's understanding of the Christian life. Um, and so, number one, the spirit indwells, uh, just as in the, Paul uses the same verb, oikeo or inokeo, to dwell in. So, sin indwelt the self, but the spirit indwells. So, it, it's uh, other, both other than who we are, I mean, it's from God's side, but yet intimately involved. And secondly, whereas in Romans 7, you have a singular I, a kind of a lonely I, isolated Mm -hmm. in this abusive relationship with sin, so to speak, you know, Uh, abuse is isolating. Well, in in, um, eight, you have the plural, the pronouns Mm -hmm. are plural from Mm -hmm. eight, three on, um, a plural you and a plural we. And so the spirit is indwelling the community. Um, this has been called power from in between by another scholar. Um, the spirit is moving in and among y'all. Mm. Is a, the yous are all plural. Yep. And so that is, um, I think, a significant way in which the spirit is um, the mediator of relationship in the community of faith. Mm. Um, the bond and mediator of relationship is not the spirit in me. You know, it's just one on one. 
And and um, this creates this kind of allied agency I've already talked about. Um, and so the spirit is, you know, in eight, five, and six, um, that set the mind on the flesh is death, set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Seven, um, the mindset, actually, I think it's also in six. Yeah. Oh, even five, the mindset of the flesh and the mindset of the spirit would be better translations. Mm. So the spirit is so much actively present that the spirit has a mindset, so to speak, in relationship to our mindset. We're just always in relationship in our thinking. Mm. Um, And then Paul uses the preposition with to talk often about that. When we cry, Abba, Father, 8, 15, and 16, the spirit is bearing witness with us. The spirit speaks among the, in the gathered community and worship and we speak, Hmm. you know, so there's this overlay of subjects, overlay of actors between the spirit and the community. Hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I mean, this is a difficult and complicated passage, but just the clarity with which you have walked us through it. I really appreciate it. And I like the the drama analogy Mm -hmm. that you're using throughout, which I think clarified it a lot. We just have one more question for you, uh, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, One of the things we like to finish with is to invite our guests to participate in the genre of the blurb. You know, in biblical Mm -hmm. scholarship, we have blurbs all the time on the backs of books. (laughs) Uh, So we were wondering if there's anything that you might want to recommend to us and our listeners, and it doesn't have to be a book. In fact, it could be a movie or a TV show or a hobby you've picked up uh, recently. Uh, Anything that you would blurb for us? Well, in the course of the conversation, I thought of naturally this book. Now, does it? Yeah, there it is. Apocalyptic Paul. (laughs) There we go. Cosmos and Anthropos in Romans 5 through 8. I thought of it because the essay I mentioned by Beverly Gaventa about um, the eye of the Psalter is in this book. It was from Mm -hmm. a conference at at Princeton. And I have a little essay in here. A bunch of other people have essays in here. And it's very readable. You don't have to be a biblical scholar. This was a conference that was for clergy as well as scholars and really much richer for that. So I would recommend that. Apocalyptic Paul, Baylor University Press, editor Beverly Gaventa. Um, Because you will, uh, they're readable, they're nourishing. Um, and provocative essays in there. Great. How's those that? are great. Those are great blurb words right there. Right? <laughs> Nourishing, know, provocative, readable. That's <laughs> fantastic. Winsome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Susan, thanks for taking us on this journey through the complicated eye of Romans 7 and through IAD. And uh, if you, listener, have enjoyed this journey with us and with Dr. Susan Eastman, uh, you can go to our website and find us at thetwotestaments.com, where you can subscribe. You can uh, find us on Twitter at the number two testaments. Uh, And then you can find our Facebook page and group, and you can ask us questions there, and we'll be happy to... um, Solve all your problems about the eye. Well, you know, if you know someone who has, you know, some kind of struggle and then apparently, you know, they can relate with this eye, you know, if they have right. a struggle. Yeah. So you might want to share this episode with them yeah. and then they could listen and they could appreciate this passage that maybe right. has been confusing them for their whole lives and actually yeah. get some rich depth out of it. Yeah. So there you go. Share with your friends. Great. Yeah. 
The Two Testaments is produced with the support of Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to Joe Zellner, Jody McFarlane, and the team in the Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants, Carson Knopf, Jake Maddox, Harrison Pike, and Gracie Plunk, for their help with production, editing, and promotion. Thank you.